Okay. Uh, so my name is Christopher Clark. It's my pleasure to be here today uh, to offer a few words about reconciliation. Uh, for those of you who, we all probably have phones. Some of you might have like the old school tattered Bible to show how, you know, how much you've read it and how religious you are, right? So if you have one of those, feel free to break it out. Uh, but it's in Ephesians chapter, excuse me, chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 11. So I'll just give you like 7.3 seconds to find it. You all are quick with your phones, I'm sure. Uh, and I'm going to read verses 11 through, uh, through the end of the chapter, okay? Um, and I'm reading from the NIV version, all right, for, uh, in, in case you're interested. Uh, and so the title of this, this section is called Jew and Gentile uh, Reconciled Through Christ. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. All right, so I have notes that keep me on track here. Um, and, and that's a lot to take in, okay? Uh, and, and so what I want to do is I want to begin by providing a little bit of context all right, in terms of what book of Ephesians, where does it fit? What do we know about Ephesus? Uh, and then also along the way, highlight a few things. And in particular, thinking about this idea of, of hostility and putting to death our hostility and the idea of one new humanity. All right, so you all bear with me. I have a couple of stories sprinkled in just to break things up. It's what I would do if I were um, in the classroom, which, by the way, so I work here at UNC. I was talking with, uh, with Tiana uh, during worship, and I work in Hamilton Hall, which literally is across the street. Um, I've been here about 10 years. My, our family moved here in 2011. Um, I was a postdoc at UNC, and now I'm on faculty in the political science department, uh, a tenured member of the faculty. Uh, and I've done research here in Cocoa Arboretum. I've sat in this beautiful place and wrestled with the idea of race and ethnicity and representation. And so it's just really a, a surreal experience to be here in this place at Love Chapel Hill talking to you about reconciliation. So I, I just want to say that. Thanks for that. All right. Look at that. Call and response. I'll take it. All right. So some context. So Ephesus, all right, so this is the book of Ephesians, okay, and uh, the, the author of the book is Paul, all right, uh, and Ephesus is a diverse place, and in, some, in fact, that's an understatement to refer 
to Ephesus as a diverse place. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Where is Ephesus? Uh, in modern day Turkey, okay? Uh, it's a place where people have various religious beliefs, various languages are spoken, there are many different cultures that are present there. Uh, back, back at the time this was written, the Temple of Artemis, is, excuse me, is in Ephesus. So Artemis is this Greek goddess uh, of the hunt and childbirth, as well as chastity. I don't want to get into that, it's not the place for me to get into that, but a couple of other things. Uh, that she's like the goddess of, uh, and the temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the world. It's also a city of trade. It was estimated to have a population of a quarter of a million people. This is the ancient world, folks, okay? A, a city of the arts, referred to as the leading city in the richest region of the Roman Empire. They had a medical school there, and also athletic contests were held there. So maybe y'all are having a moment I'm having too, right? In terms of, wait, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It's like the triangle, okay? I don't know if you've made that connection or not, but if you think about it, right? The various universities, the medical schools, athletics, of course, right? Um, a place that's diverse, arts, all the things I talked about are true of the triangle. And so I think this book had, well, the Bible always has something to offer us, right? But in particular for Love Chapel Hill, for this local expression of the kingdom, this, this verse has, this passage of scripture has a lot to tell us, all right? Ephesus is a place very much like where we find ourselves. All right, so another question you might have here is where does this fit in scripture? So earlier in the chapter, Paul talks about being made alive in Christ. That's, one of the, that's the earlier part of chapter two. So I saw the therefore, and those of you, you know, maybe you, you really like the English language or love the English language or think a, a bit about it, but therefore, anytime I hear therefore, I think what came before it, right? I couldn't read the whole chapter to you. We'd be here all day, right? So you all feel free to read it on your own. Um, but uh, the may, being made alive in Christ came before that, okay? And so you, you can read that on your own later. Um, chapter one, which is, which is the previous chapter, covers a lot of ground, uh, and, is, and it's written in what's referred to as an elevated or a lofty style. Uh, and I'm not meaning to be pejorative here. I'm simply using the language that biblical scholars have used here. I mean, if you read chapter one, I think you all will agree that you know, it's written in this lofty, elevated style, okay? So what I want us to note, however, from chapter one, uh, is that the letter is written to the holy people in Ephesus, okay? Uh, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So it's written to Christians in Ephesus. Which again, here we are, we're a church, right? So this is a message for us. That's really the point I'm getting at here, okay? So uh, we also see, before I'm gonna dig into the passage in a second here, people, don't worry. Um, I know I have like 20, 25 minutes, and I'll, I'll be sure to use it, I'm sure. Um, Ephesus comes up in other parts of the Bible as well. So in Acts 18, Paul goes there. We see him reasoning with Jews in a synagogue. He leaves from there. They mention somebody named Apollos, someone who was a, a Jewish person who was learned. That's, that's how we said it in my church growing up. Not learned, but a learned man, okay? He was learned and, and, uh, and taught about Jesus there. In Acts 19, Paul's back in Ephesus. He preaches the gospel. There's a riot. And eventually, a city clerk of all people eventually quiets the crowd. Read it yourself. I, I mean, it's like a whole, it's like a whole other sermon, actually. I'll let Matt or someone else get into that, okay? Acts 19. Um, Ephesus comes up again in Acts 20, in the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Timothy, in 2 Timothy, in Revelation. And biblical scholars also say that Ephesians has a really close connection with the book of Colossians, okay? So now I think I've done my due diligence in terms of providing context, at least I hope. And so now let's, let's dig into the passage a little bit here. All right. I think I need a drink of water. Hold on. Ah, oh, that's refreshing. I love this. Okay. 
So let's talk a little bit here about the dividing wall of hostility that comes up in the passage that I, that I read, okay, from Ephesians 2. So one of the things I'm struck by is that this is a, a wall that is erected to divide, not necessarily to protect from harm. All right, and it's right there, right? It's, it's the dividing wall of hostility. And then also there's a hostility word, which I'm going to get to in a second, don't worry. Uh, but it's a wall that keeps us from seeing one another. When I was a kid in elementary school in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, this is of the 90s. I'm a child of the 90s. Anyone that talks to me, I love the 90s. I could talk about you know, culture and music and all that. Uh, but at one point, I remember, and I'm not too proud of this now as an adult because our, our oldest daughter, Kaya, is now around the age I was when this was a big thing. But what we would do is someone would talk to us and we would say, brick wall, talk to the hand. And, and I can't quite say it in the same way I used to, the same sort of intonation because I'm not 10 years old anymore. But that's what we say. We say, brick wall. And you would put your, your hand in someone's face. Right. And there was this whole thing about like this is an A.B. conversation. So see you later. I mean, it was very mean, actually. And I'm glad I'm getting some laughs here. Right. But I know a little bit about walls. Right. Like that's something that comes back to me yeah, all these years later. OK. In terms of scripture, uh, apparently there was literally a wall in the temple. Uh, and I'm reading here from uh, this dictionary on, on Paul and so from, so from biblical scholars. And so the barrier in the temple dividing the court of the Gentiles from the court of women. This barrier beyond which no Gentile was to venture on pain of death has been figuratively torn down in Christ. So this is how these biblical scholars interpret this particular passage. So here's one thing I just want to get to. All right. Which is the idea that Christ Jesus all right, has removed the obstacles that separated the two groups from one another. And so that makes me wonder. Why are these divisions still intact today? So let me just make a connection here to be explicit. All right. Um, the way in which I'm thinking about this passage. So I know it's written to Jews and Gentiles. Right. But the way I'm looking at this is for our local expression of the church, for the United States. So for 2021, I'm thinking about it in terms of black and white. And so I know there are other racial and ethnic groups here. I'm not meaning to be exclusionary. That's not my nature. Right. But as a black person, <laughs> I feel like I can speak best to that. And so my emphasis here and especially being in North Carolina, Silent Sam was somewhere here on this campus. I'm really bad at directions. Anyone that knows me knows that. But OK, thanks. Thanks. Deon. So it's somewhere over there. Right. It was there. And so I want to highlight this idea of, like, of race and ethnicity in particular. OK. And then, and, then, and then even more so thinking about blacks and whites. OK. And, I, and I'll also try to bring in other groups. too. I don't want to leave anybody out. Right. But just bear with me here. OK. That we still have these divisions intact, that we still are divided from one another, that there still seems to be a lot of hostility that exists between people of different racial and ethnic groups. And this isn't just true in like our culture more broadly. This is true. Oh, am I out of, out of, see, let me stay back here. This is true within Christian circles. Churches themselves are still divided. What I want to do is I want to talk a little bit here about one new one new humanity. OK. Uh, and what I'm struck by with that language is that there are no outsiders. OK, um, the uncircumcised. All right. And the circumcised are all part of the same family. We are all brought into God's family because of who Jesus is. We are one new humanity and the hostilities that we have towards one another have been put to death. By the cross. So I've already mentioned that, you know, race is a big, race is a big part of how I see myself. All right. And it always has been. I think it always will be. Um, 
And a lot of it has to do with how I grew up. So let me just talk a little bit more about my background here as well. Uh, so I, I mentioned I grew up in Kansas City, and so I grew up in the inner, inner city, in the inner part, the urban core, I think it's a nice way they put it, of Kansas City. If you know anything about Kansas City, it's just like any other major city. There are streets that divide, and so there's a, a, a street called Troost, um, and east of Troost has uh, a larger proportion of black people, property values are lower, there's more crime, and that's the side of Troost I lived on. And then there's the west side of Troost, this looks very different, all right? It's a lot like MLK, the role MLK plays in this area, all right? Um, Martin Luther King Boulevard. Let me be clear here for those of you who maybe are streaming from elsewhere. I'm not going to blame Dr. King for racial divisions, <laughs> but MLK Boulevard here in this area. And I just remember as a kid, like we would drive, like on 47th Street, for example, from east of Truce to west of Truce. And again, I couldn't quite put it together, but I remember, I'm like, wow, like the grass is greener. The homes are nicer, like it's, the neighborhoods are safer. I couldn't figure out, I knew it was different, but I couldn't put my finger on what made it different until I got older, until I started reading books about it and better understood that this actually was a decision made by, this had to do with, with how, how uh, well, this is a whole nother, whole, whole nother talk here, but thinking about how, how loans were given. Where were black people allowed to give? And so there are, there are other systemic factors at play here that I won't get into now, but um, they, they just are worth noting, right? But the point is these divisions exist. And so I grew up in this east side of Truce, um, and I attended schools that were just almost all black students. I mean, we had a few Latino students, uh, even fewer white students, but basically, you know, there were black students like me. Um, and so growing up, right, we talked a lot about race, and, and I was around like a lot of black people. And so, you know, that was a big, that was a big part of me growing up. Um, and then coming up in school and in college in particular, I was part of various clubs related to black people. It's like the Black Student Association. I had a leadership role in that. And anyway, all throughout college, um, uh, and in the 90s, I went through the, what I refer to as the blackest beautiful phase. So like in the early 90s, as those of you know, it became really kind of hip to wear like the African color beads and the shirts and all that. And then some of that's reflected in, in shows like Fresh Prince, for example, or Martin or other shows like that. And so I was all about that. I love watching movies featuring black actors. Anytime there was a game show, anybody here watch Supermarket Sweep? Anyone? At least one person. I love that show. Uh, okay, well, Price is Right. Will of Fortune. Any show, and anytime there was a black person, my sisters and I were like, yes! The black people were winning, right? Like, we just took pride in seeing people thrive who were black, okay? No matter what, right? we just want, we cheer for them. Uh, we love listening to music by black musicians. So my father played a lot of music by people like James Brown and Isaac Hayes and, and from the 70s and even before that. Um, and, and I'm a big fan of jazz music, and some of that is because I'm from Kansas City, and jazz music um, is really big there. And then the church I went to, uh, before going off to college, was made up of nearly all black people. And of all names, it's Love Fellowship Church. All right, so I know it's a lot of background here, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting there, folks. Uh, so early on in graduate school, let's transition a bit here. And so I did my doctoral work at the University of Iowa. Uh, I was part of a, a manuscript study as part of InterVarsity Graduate Christian Fellowship, or IVGCF. Don't ask me to say that five times fast, okay? Um, and we really dug into this passage. And I remember we would have like different colored pencils. We would like underline words that would, would have, you know, how many words, were, how many times was the word mentioned and what does this context say? And, and we would have tea and, and usually some sort of dessert. And it was just great, right? And we would go to this, this church and really wrestle with it. Um, and, um, and it was in like this Bible study led by, uh, by my mentor, uh, Kevin Coomer. Um, I was really challenged by this passage because at that point I was in my early 20s. Right. You all have a sense of my background and how I saw myself. And so it was, it was, you know, black, black, black. Right. Race was the lens through which I saw the world primarily, um, even though I was a person of Christian faith as well. 
And I was challenged by this, like, wait, one new humanity, right? And it was, I was also encouraged by like, wait, one new humanity. Like that's a really powerful, beautiful thing that we could be as well. Um, and in that Bible study, through that manuscript study, right, it really made me question about how I think about myself and where my Christian identity fits in, in terms of, of how I live my life. Um, and, and it made me come to terms with the fact that as a, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I, I'm part of a new group. I'm part of this one new humanity made up of people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. Uh, I really experienced wonderful community in my time in Iowa, not only in the university group I mentioned, but also uh, with the church I attended. I was like a, an adopted member of a, of a family of pastors um, in Iowa City, and I really got to know them well. And, and it was and, and so I, I should make clear. So, so Kevin is white and his family adopted me, the Wasing family. Uh, they also are white. And so like, here I was like this black guy from inner city, Kansas City. I did say Iowa. I don't know. I didn't I didn't pause long enough to give you all time to sink that in. Look up the demographics of Iowa. And I love Iowa, by the way. You'll see why in a second. But it is not the most racially diverse place. And yet, I was able to experience wonderful community with white people who were Christians in, in Iowa. And it was really when I began to, like, grow. And, and again, this one in humanity has been really, it's been really important to me. It's my point, folks. Um, and, 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 even, and it's been really, really important to me in a second. I'll get to that. This is where I'm going. Um, so let me just clarify some things here. It wasn't that I somehow ceased to be black, right? Like all of a sudden, one new humanity means I check my identity at the door or that any of us check our identities at the door. That's not what that's getting at. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Um, but what it is, or what it's getting at is that when, we go in, when I go into Christian circles, I bring with me who I am. And more importantly, I don't allow who I, my racial identity to get in the way of how I relate to people who aren't black. So I'm especially grateful for this passage because I mean, it's, it's scripture and it's, it's God's word, right? And so, but for me personally, it means a lot. And being part of this manuscript study and really wrestling with it meant a lot because it was through that passage and through wrestling with it that I was able to actually, you know, rethink about how I see the world and really, you know, think about this one humanity. And ultimately, uh, it was it was October 2007 when I really got to when I really um, connected with Tiana. We really met. Uh, we actually were going to the same church at the same time. And I won't tell these stories here on camera, but we have some funny stories about how we kind of interacted with each other before really kind of meeting and um, in, in a coffee shop uh, in October 2007. I was studying for my qualifying exams, um, and I didn't really drink much coffee at the time. I thought, oh, let me go study here and get you know this place House of Aromas. Uh, and Tiana was there, and, and, she, and she waved, and we really hit it off, and, and, and we've been together since. Um, and, uh, and Tiana's white. And I was able to see her and come to know her and love her as she is. And we have three children, Kaya, Cadence, and Kinley. And their curiosity their hearts, their gifts, they're, they're amazing people. And, and being their father, being married to Tiana has shaped me tremendously. It's allowed me to grow in ways that are difficult to describe. And our very family embodies right, racial reconciliation in Christ.
so reconciliation is is um is really hard actually um and I don't want to just skim over that. I don't want you all to walk away. Like, oh, Chris, that's such a beautiful story, Chris. Right? So, uh, Chad and I were talking yesterday, uh, commemorate, I think, 54 years since the Supreme Court recognized the legality of, of, of mixed race marriage. So, it struck down anti miscegenation laws, uh, the Loving versus Virginia case, okay? Um, and, and I'm not like, but I, I don't want to just end there. Like, I want to like, really dig into like, why reconciliation is difficult, right? I don't want us just to walk away like it's some sort of lifetime Hallmark movie and, you know, everything's well and, and good in the end because it's hard. Right. And that wouldn't be accurate. And so, you know, for us to lo no longer have hostility towards one another means that we need to process the anger that we feel towards towards one another. Um, anger concerning injustices, both current and, and, and those in the past. We have to tell the truth. We have to recognize the power of the words and the labels that we use when describing one another. Words that can all, words can often be used in order to divide us and to articulate hierarchies that exist in terms of who is superior. So, so racial hierarchies. Let me just let me be a little clear about that. Racial hierarchies, right? We have to pay attention to the words that we use when describing those who differ from us. We have to recognize the shared need for reconciliation with God, this idea of righteousness, and know that that doesn't mean that we somehow stop thinking about how we relate to one another, justice. And this is something that, you know, it's a familiar thing because Matt has talked a lot about this, right? For months, he's been hammering this home about how we have to hold both righteousness and justice. And so this passage also helps us as well, right? In a way that I think is really neat. And so I'd like to talk a bit about that. And it's the idea that Jesus is the cornerstone or viewing Jesus as the cornerstone, I think is key to this idea of reconciliation. I'm not an architect, but I looked this up and I think we actually, do we have an architect now? Somebody here, I should have, I should have like talked with somebody. I got an expert here. So if I'm wrong, y'all can correct me, right? But I looked online and it wasn't just Wikipedia, okay? It was it looked like a verifiable source. You figure, I know how to, I should figure I know how to check sources given I do research for a living, but uh, I feel confident in this, okay? That the cornerstone is laid first and everything else is oriented around it. So if we orient ourselves around Jesus, if we read scripture and if we follow him, then that positions us to be reconciled with one another. So what gets us in the way of orienting our, orienting our lives based on our relationship with Jesus, based on, on who Jesus is? And so I have a few thoughts I'd like to share. Um, I think our allegiances, our allegiances to, uh, to our jobs, to our families, to our neighborhoods. As I talked about, for me, something I've wrestled with a lot in my life is racial identity as a black person in this, in this country. And so I don't know what that is for you, right? Who do you hold hostility towards because of an identity that is important to you? Does this get in the way of you relating to them as a person, right? This is getting in the way of you relating to them, is what I mean to say, right? And in particular, if they are a person of faith, do they get in the way of you relating to them, even though you have this shared identity in Jesus? The hostilities that we hold, how do they get in the way of how we relate to one another? That's what I'm trying to communicate here. I know that as a racial minority in this country, 
a racial minority that lives in Chapel Hill and works, lives in Durham, works in Chapel Hill, grew up in inner city Kansas City and just living the life I've lived, it's not always easy to trust people and to be myself. And some of this is due to my own fear of being rejected by them. I'm not liking to be stereotyped. So I am, I am over six feet tall. At one point in my life, I used to be able to dunk a basketball. Now all I'm dunking is donuts is what I tell people. I need, I, I need anyway, that works. I should just let that go, right? But um, people would think, oh, Chris, you should play basketball, right? And, and I like to play. But just because I'm over six feet tall and black doesn't mean that that's all I have to do is play basketball, right? And so being stereotyped as an athlete as opposed to an egghead academic. I'm sorry, a, a, a academic. Look at me using labels here. My own, I got to take my own, my own words here. As an academic. But that's all to say, right? Not liking to be stereotyped, feeling the need to prove to people that I'm not the things that they think I am because of the racial identity, because of who I am, because of this body that I'm in. So I imagine for, for those in other positions, right? Um, let me just be clear. I imagine for many, many of my white brothers and sisters here, right? The difficulty is not wanting to say the wrong thing. Feeling guilty about the privilege that you have. Here's the thing, though, folks, is people of Christian faith. The message is clear. The hostilities that we have towards one another have been put to death. That really struck me. I wasn't expecting to see that when, when, when I chose this passage and thinking about it. Um, the hostilities have been put to death, not not just set aside for a moment to be right, sort of picked back up later. But they literally have been put to death. There are no foreigners or strangers when we look at the world through the lens of one new humanity. I said that quickly, so let, let me say that again. There are no foreigners or strangers when we look at the world through the lens of one new humanity. That's a whole nother sort of message that could be talked about. I did uh, some search some in, in preparation for the scripture. Foreigners and strangers comes up throughout the Old Testament, right? So that's like a whole nother, it could be a whole nother deep dive, right? But there are no foreigners or strangers. And so I feel like the church has to be um, on the front lines, the, the church has to be the vanguard, the place where reconciliation takes place. So I'm grateful to be part of a church community taking part in the hard work of racial reconciliation, taking part in the fifth Sundays where we worship with other churches, one of them being St. Joseph's CME, uh, a church that played a pivotal role in the civil rights movement here in North Carolina uh, in the 1960s. Some closing thoughts here, folks. Um, Paul's words to the Ephesians could be applied to us. We are at the early stages of telling the truth about history and discrimination and the ways that these things have structured people's lives. And these conversations need to continue. In having these conversations in the church, in the U.S., we have to recognize that race and ethnicity is something that has long divided us. But because of who Jesus is, because of what this passage has to tell us, it does not have to divide us. So I'll just say something I mentioned against when to come back to this It's closing thoughts. Just remind you, we are no longer at war with one another. The hostilities have ceased. And it's just it seems bizarre for me to be saying that here because. Just like you, I mean, I've lived through these last few word, few years, and it's one who studies politics and race and representation, been paying a lot of attention to what's been going on in the world and the way in which faith has sort of worked its way into all these questions about our allegiances and politics and so forth. Um, but this passage tells us 
that, that the hostilities have ceased and, and that. Um, and so for me, and I'm, telling, I'm really telling myself this and telling you as well, we have to hold fast to this word. And ask God to equip us to, to be the people he's called us to be. So at the very end of this passage, it's this idea of architecture and building. And I just want to end on that note. So the idea that God is building something. We have a God who generates. Right. He creates. Right? He gives life. And he's building something beautiful here. In this church, this local expression of the kingdom around and all around the world. We are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Praise be to God.